0: Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant, or even an ill-natured thing in his life, but then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his grey eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword, and a history of the Peninsular War, in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's guide and Bailey's magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months, but what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and chong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry, that did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India, and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The Colonel was very fond of Hughie, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got 10,000 pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Hughie looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived. He dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Hughie at first. It must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Hughie better, he liked him quite as much for his bright buoyant spirit and general reckless nature and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man with a face like a wrinkled parchment and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was flung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters, his thick boots were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Hughie, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so, such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A trouvalier, more cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Ramburne would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Hughie, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting? asked Hughie, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Hughie, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone and standing all day long as one's easel? It's all very well, Hughie, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet after some time the servant came in and told trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him don't run away Hughie," he said as he went out i will be back in a moment the old beggar man took advantage of trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him he looked so forlorn and wretched that Hughie could not help pitying him and felt in his pockets to see what money he had all he could find was a sovereign and some coppers Poor old fellow, he thought to himself, he wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight, and he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said, thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night, he strolled into the Palant Club about 11 o'clock and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hawk and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette? Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is, what prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you were only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that any one should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags are falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. It seems poverty to you is picturesque to me, however I'll tell him of your offer." Allan said Huey, seriously, "'you painters are a heartless lot.' "'An artist's heart is his head,' replied Trevor, "'and our business is to realize the world as we see it, "'not to reform it as we know it. "'A chance sans matière. "'And now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her.' "'You don't mean to say you talked to him about her,' said Huey. "'Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the $10,000. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Hughie, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling. That old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean? exclaimed Hughie. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg, he's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing, and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags, they're an old suit I got in Spain, Baron Hausberg cried, Huey, good heavens, I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son of fair the argenticiteur. I think you might have told me to Alan, said Hughie sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Hughie said Trevor, it never entered my mind that you went about distributing alms in that reckless way. I can understand you kissing a pretty model, but you giving a sovereign to an ugly one? By Jove, no. Besides, the fact is that I really was not at home today to anyone. And when you came in, I did not know whether Hausberg would like his name mentioned. You know he wasn't in full dress. What a duffer, he must think me, said Hughie. Not at all. He was in the highest spirits after you left, he kept chuckling to himself and rubbing his old wrinkled hands together. I couldn't make out why he was so interested to know all about you but I see it all now. He'll invest your sovereign for you, Hughie. Pay you the interest every six months and have a capital story to tell after dinner. I'm an unlucky devil, growled Hughie. The best thing I can do is go to bed, and my dear Alan, you mustn't tell anyone. I shouldn't dare show my face in the row. Nonsense, it reflects the highest credit of your philanthropic spirit, Hughie. And don't run away, have another cigarette, and you could talk about Laura as much as you like. However, Hughie wouldn't stop but walked home, feeling very unhappy, and leaving Alan Trevor in a fit of laughter. The next morning, as he was at breakfast, the servant brought him up a, a card, which was written, Monsieur Gustave Nadine de la Part de M. Le Baron Hausberg. I suppose he has come for an apology, said Hughie to himself, and he told the servant to show the visitor up. An old gentleman with golden spectacles and gray hair came into the room and said in a slight French accent, have I the honor of dressing Monsieur Erskine?" Hughie bowed. I've come from Baron Hausberg, he continued. The Baron. I beg, sir, that you will offer him my sincerest apologies." stammered Huey. The Baron, said the gentleman with a smile, has commissioned me to bring you this letter. And he extended a sealed envelope. On the outside was written, a wedding present to Hughie Erskine and Laura Merton from an old beggar. And inside was a check for $10,000. When they were married, Alan Trevor was the best man and the Baron made a speech at the wedding breakfast. Millionaire models remarked Alan are rare enough, but by Jove, model millionaires are rarer still.
1: The long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness, but from the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey around the beleaguered four courts the heavy guns roared here and there through the city machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically like dogs barking on lone farms republicans and free staters were waging civil war on a rooftop near o'connell bridge a republican sniper lay watching beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses his face was the face of a student thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. he had eaten nothing since morning. He'd been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draught. Then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, Considering whether he should risk a smoke, it was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke, and Hurley put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash and a bullet whizzed over his head, he dropped immediately, he had seen the flash, it came from the opposite side of the street, he rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear, and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet, there was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky, his enemy was under cover. Just then an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street, It stopped on the opposite side of the street, fifty yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly from the opposite roof a shot rang out, and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. I'm hit, he muttered. Dropping flat onto the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound, the arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it, then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward, and the cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street then he sank to the roof dragging his hand with him crawling quickly to his feet he peered up at the corner of the roof his ruse had succeeded the other snipers seeing the captain rifle fall thought he had killed his man he was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about 50 yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was paining him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim, his hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil then when the smoke cleared he peered across and uttered a cry of joy his enemy had been hit he was reeling over the parapet in his death agony he struggled to his feet but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream the rifle fell from his grasp hit the parapet fell over bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath and then clattered on the pavement then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward the body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. Weakened by his wound the long summer day of fasting and watching on the roof, he revolted from the sight of the shattered mass of his dead enemy. His teeth chattered. He began to gibber to himself, cursing the war, cursing himself, cursing everybody. He looked at the smoking revolver in his hand and with an oath, he hurled it to the roof at his feet. The revolver went off with a concussion, and the bullet whizzed past the sniper's head. He was frightened back to his senses by the shock. His nerves steadied, the cloud of fear scattered from his mind, and he laughed, taking the whiskey flask from his pocket. He emptied it in a drought. He felt reckless under the influence of the spirit. He decided to leave the roof now and look for his company commander to report everywhere around was quiet there was not much danger in going through the streets he picked up the revolver and put it in his pocket then he crawled down to the skylight to the house underneath when the sniper reached the laneway on the street level he felt a sudden curiosity as to the identity of the enemy sniper whom he had killed he decided that he was a good shot whoever he was he wondered did he know him perhaps he had been in his own company before the split in the army he decided to risk going over to have a look at him he peered around the corner into o'connell street in the upper part of the street there was heavy firing but around here all was quiet the sniper darted across the street a machine gun tore up the ground around him with a hail of bullets but he escaped he threw himself face downward beside the corpse the machine gun stopped then the sniper turned over the body and looked into his brother's face When Narcissus died, the pool of his pleasure changed from a cup of sweet waters into a cup of salt tears, and the O-Reds came weeping through the woodland, that they might sing to the pool and give it comfort. And when they saw the pool had been changed from a cup of sweet waters into a cup of salt tears, they loosened the green tresses of their hair, and cried to the pool, and said, We do not wonder that you should mourn in this manner for Narcissus. So beautiful was he, But was Narcissus beautiful, said the pool. Who should know that better than you, answered the oreads. Us did he ever pass by, but you he sought for, and would lie on your banks and look down at you. And in the mirror of your waters he would mirror his own beauty. And the pool answered, but I loved Narcissus because, as he lay on my banks and looked down at me, in the mirror of his eyes I saw ever my own beauty mirrored.